This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Adam Grant. I'm here with Brian Little, who teaches at Cambridge. He's also a senior fellow here at the Wharton School. He's a personality psychologist and the author of Me, Myself, and Us, a wonderful new book. And it's not every day that I actually get to interview my mentor on camera. Um, Brian, for starters, tell us about your book. The book actually grew out of experiences you and I had, uh, which were at, at uh, Harvard a few years ago. Uh, I had um, stumbled upon uh, the opportunity of uh, teaching a class, and as the class sort of went on after a few days, it got bigger and then bigger. And I thought, oh, isn't this wonderful? All the students are coming. But in fact, it was the ex-boyfriends of some of the students in the class were coming because there seemed to be something that touched their, um, their hearts and let them think that uh, there was something of value here beyond the classroom that may actually influence their lives. And then it started to happen that, that parents would come and, and belligerent uncles and things like that. And so I thought in about the year 2000 that it would be a good, it would, it would be a good idea to write a book that would engage with those people who weren't taking personality psychology as, uh, as an academic course, but as a way of illuminating their lives and understanding the people they love and work with. I remember sending every one of my roommates, uh, actually forcing them to take your course. And every day, <laughs> I remember that too. <laughs> I, 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 of course, got repaid for that by them coming back and, and diagnosing all of my problems and pathologies, which I suppose I deserved. <laughs> uh, but I, one of the most interesting things we learned about in the course was this idea of, of free traits. Talk to us about that. Thank you. I, I think the, the, the setup to this is that right now the study of traits is in the ascendancy, as, as you know. There was a time when trait psychology was uh, was in deep trouble, and it was uh, as a result of uh, Walter Mischel's 1968 book, uh, Personality and Assessment, where uh, he drew the, the conclusion that stable traits of personality were non-existent. He's modified that position more recently, but at the time it dealt quite a blow to the, to the field. In the, um, in the ensuing years, trait psychologists, um, those who study the big five dimensions of personality, um, gained, uh, regained ascendancy. And it's become, uh, I think, certainly the, the most um, active field of personality research. But I have some concerns about it. And let me, let me tell you the essence of, of uh, my concerns about, about traits. Um, the big five dimensions um, spell out the acronym OCEAN, openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and, and neuroticism. And many who study traits believe that we can be adequately and effectively described by uh, our status on those five dimensions. And I think there's some truth to that. And I lecture, as you know, um, about these. And in the book, um, I uh, spend a couple of chapters talking about these relatively fixed traits of personality. And perhaps the most um, topical and hot topic is, is that of um, extroversion, largely the result of our mutual friend Susan Cain's uh, book, Quiet. And um, one of the, which I strongly recommend your viewers to, to read except for chapter nine, because chapter nine is about the uh, machinations of a strange little Canadian 
uh, guy who taught at Harvard for a few years, uh, who used to hide from his students in the washroom. And um, I, uh, and I explained that behavior. I, I guess it's somebody very similar to me. And um, it, uh, I explained that behavior by invoking the notion of free trades. I am, and this surprises my students, um, a very introverted person. I'm off the bottom of the scale as an introvert. But because of something that matters dearly to me, which is the personal project of professing with passion and alliterating in a public place, um, I, um, I will act as an extrovert when I'm lecturing. I'll speak um, loudly, as, as you do when you're addressing a class at the beginning. I'll gesticulate wildly. Uh, I hope not too wildly, be, wildly because I think we need to um, not to be overbearing when we're professing. But we need to keep students awake at 8 in the morning. And so I act like that, and I'm engaged in what I call a free trade. Um, and much of Me, Myself, and Us, the book, deals with how free trade behavior differs from trait behavior or fixed trade behavior. And the free trade of, in my case, pseudo-extroversion plays out by advancing my core project, which is engaging with my students whom I love. Um, and, and it advances that core project in ways that will redound to my benefit. But there are potential costs. I'm not rare. Many people act out of character through free trades. There are highly agreeable people who, for all of the month of March, act out of character because they're trying to get a better place for their mother in a care home. And they have to bash down the doors of administrative um, uh, resistance and, and advance a project, take care of mom that enjoins that person to act in a disagreeable way. We can do this. It's called professionalism. It's also called love. Um, but we may pay a price if we act protractedly, act out of character um, for, a, for a long period. The, the empirical evidence on that is still growing. I'd say right now it's mixed. But uh, there is um, growing evidence that acting in ways that go against your first nature, as I call it, may... Um, may be problematic at the same time as it advances our well-being. So when we take this into the workplace, uh, one of yeah. the things that you touched on is this idea that we all have personal projects. Yeah. Um, these commitments that we make to courses of action that matter deeply to us. How can an understanding of the personal projects of the people I work with yeah. uh, enable us to work more effectively together? Well, I think it, it offers an, an explanation for their action in ways that simply monitoring or attending to their, their outward and visible behavior would not. Um, I think we can watch a person who is um, engaged in a, in a pattern of behavior that makes us say that person is neurotic. Um, and therefore, I may rate that person down because he appears to be anxious when dealing with clients. But in fact, that person may be engaged in a personal project that um, is entirely explicable by, no, by noting what that core project is. That core project may be that I've got to pick up my kid. Um, he's waiting outside in the cold. Um, I know I'm a little distracted and I may give the appearance of not understanding what's going on in this financial meeting. Once you understand what a person's core projects are, even ask a person, how's it going, David? It puts us in a position where we can actually treat humans as humans. And that, to me, is going to pay enormous benefits in the long term. 
Now, you sort of take a stand in the book about some more effective and less effective ways of thinking about personality. And, and one of the more popular ones, of course, is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, <laughs> uh, which you've been observing for almost half a century now. Yes. Um, where do you stand on that as an assessment instrument? Um, I, uh, in, the, in the book, I, I, I take a few whacks at the MBTI. Um, but then I, I come back and, and look at um, the, the, the function that it serves of getting people to talk about individual differences in personality. And that's good. I think that it opens up um, a way of thinking about each other uh, and thinking about ourselves. The, the validity and reliability leaves a lot to be desired from a hard-nosed psychometrist perspective. Um, but I think it does serve a purpose. And so um, unlike some of my students who would totally castigate it, um, I would say that there is a room for that, but we need to be cautious. And, and the best example is by invoking free traits again, that people who walk around with a, I am an extrovert or I'm a, uh, uh, an intuitive introvert, um, sometimes reify it so much that they actually think that there's a, a kind of neurological circuit in the brain that declares itself as, I am an extrovert or I am an introvert. And that is palpably false. And I think by um, cordoning ourselves off from refutation, by claiming as a core sense of our identity that I am an extrovert, we, uh, or any of the other Myers-Briggs uh, designations, I think we reduce our degrees of freedom to be fully human. Um, Adam, let me just use a random name, may be quite introverted, but he could act out of character and advance the core projects that matter to him, such as his students at Wharton. And, um, and all that is, is important. But if he just walked around with I am an introvert on his forehead, the degrees of freedom would be severely curtailed. Probably my favorite chapter in the book was the one about self-monitoring which yes. I think captures some of the, the fundamental questions around when just some people essentially end up adapting to the situation, yeah. uh, whereas others choose to say, this is yeah. who I am. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about what we should yeah. know about self-monitoring. So, self-monitoring um, boomed in the, in the 70s with Mark Snyder's work, and I sort of revisited and tried to, to cast it in terms of, of the whole issue of fidelity to to our beliefs and, um, and, and authenticity and the current debate about authenticity. Um, high self-monitors are those who will adapt themselves to the, uh, to, the, to the current situation. So at a party, they will act party. At a funeral, they will act, act funereal. Um, and, um, and those who are low self-monitors uh, will shape their behavior to accord um, uh, the, the high self-monitors will shape their behavior to accord uh, to the situation. The low self-monitors will act on the basis of their own um, beliefs and their own personality traits. And so if they're feeling particularly funereal at a party, a low self-monitor says, well, that's the way I am. I like to be glum at a party. Uh, the high self-monitor would say, good God, it's a party. Standing by the coffin, staring at it. I mean, um, you've, you've got to shape yourself up by adapting to the situation to which the low self-monitor says, I don't get it. Why? People who are stand-up chameleons have no character. And those who are high self-monitors will say, those who are rigidly themselves have no humanity because they're insensitive to the needs of others. 
And so the conclusion I reach after giving a bunch of the research in this area is that I think on balance, um, high self-monitoring is very adaptive. As long as it doesn't um, blend itself into um, what's called aesthetic character disorder, where you are so imbued with the um, with the demands of the situation or the delights of the aesthetics of the situation, that you will act in ways that go against your core values. Um, and there have been some politicians who have been accused of having uh, aesthetic character disorder. Um, and I, I think that it in turn blends into um, a kind of uh, insensitivity that can be downright, downright dangerous. In closing, we often think that great leaders are great teachers. And I think it would be great to hear a little bit of wisdom on, on what we can learn from one of the true great teachers. Uh, you won Canada's highest award for university teaching. You were the, one of the favorite professors of the Harvard class every year you taught there. Um, what can leaders learn from the way that you teach in the classroom? Oh, th first, thank you. Um, I've been giving a lot of thought to this recently. Um, and part of it was stimulated by, by your own work uh, and by the... Um, evidence that uh, introverts can be uh, good, are good listeners. And um, it, that balance between talking and listening, asserting and reflecting, and the capacity to shift between them seems to be really crit critical. So I don't think that there is a one-size-fits-all personality type for leaders. I think there's a there are a diverse set of factors, the key aspect of which is the ability to um, choose, select, and empower um, the most virtuous forms of your own personality, the capacity to listen, the capacity to say, I've listened, I must act, the capacity to show alacrity, moving in and dealing with the situation instead of puzzling and all Hamlet-like and not being sure. Um, but overdoing one or the other, I think, leads to, to um, uh, problems uh, both personal and, and political. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Adam. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.